um, that you should never attempt to talk about the kingdom with at least, without at least having four to six weeks to do that. As I started writing this, I kept like writing more and more and more and more. And it's like, well, if I talk about this, I got to talk about this because it doesn't make sense unless I talk about that. And it kept getting longer and longer and longer and longer and longer. So I hope you don't have lunch plans. Um, I, I just, it was one of those things like it just kept, it just kept growing. And I, I was like, I, I want to talk about this, but I can't because I've already got like 20 pages of stuff here. I've got to whittle down anyway. Um, and so I realized that this, the kingdom of God is you're going to get like a, a shotgun blast about the kingdom of God today. Um, I'm just going to fire hose you with as much information as I can, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to take something away from this, um, maybe a different perspective about the kingdom. I want to start in Mark chapter 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. How many of you, like me, grew up believing that Jesus' message was believe in me and go to heaven when you die? How many of you grew up with that kind of message in church? It's okay, you can admit it. That, that was the message that I grew up with until really, and that was the message I actually preached when I first got in ministry, that that was the point of the gospel. That was the good news, is that you believe in Jesus and you go to heaven when you die. That was the whole point of why Jesus came. However, if you read the gospels, example A, the good news is that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come, depending on what translation you read. And the kingdom of God, that, that, that term carries with it all these, these specific images and ideas for many of us. Now, for me, as I grew up, many of us, when you hear the term kingdom of God, or in, in some, in a, I think Matthew's gospel, it's called the kingdom of heaven. Both of those are kind of interchangeable you immediately think of a place or some kind of dimension that is outside and separate from earth. I don't know. I mean, that, that's the image I kind of grew up with is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven was something that was, was there. It was, it was out there. It wasn't right here. It was just, it was out there and that, and someday that's where we'll be. So kingdom of God and the term heaven were kind of synonymous for me. They, they just meant the same thing because I didn't know any different. Now, people in Jesus's day had, had definitive expectations when it came to the idea of a kingdom. So I want to talk about those for a second. Uh, in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. What, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Go to the next slide. Now, the disciples, and Peter, in this instance, Peter specifically, we always read this passage and we think this is Peter's, like, great triumph. Oh, Peter finally gets it. You know, we read the Gospels, and Peter was one of those guys, we go, oh, man, I can't believe he did that again. And we go, he finally gets it. He realizes who Jesus is. Sort of. You see, the disciples and the Jews in Jesus' time had specific expectations of what a Messiah, what the anointed of God was supposed to be like. He was supposed to be royal. He was, he was supposed to be a kingly figure, sort of in the manner of King David. King David was the great king of Israel. And he was supposed to be a, this, this kingly, uh, very, uh, very princely fi- figure. You know, the robes and the crowns, the, ho- the whole shooting match. Go to the next one. He was supposed to be a revolutionary. See, the idea for the Messiah, the Messiah would come in. See, Israel for, for centuries has lived under the, the, the oppression of some foreign government. Assyria, Babylon, 
Persia, and in Jesus' time, the Romans. So, so the, the Messiah was supposed to be this, this revolutionary who would come in and violently overthrow the oppressors, in this case, Rome, and expel them from the promised land, and Israel would once again possess the land that God had promised them back with Abraham. Go to the next one. He was supposed to be a restorer. He was going to restore the kingdom of Israel once again to its rightful position as God's chosen people. And he would sit on the throne as God's anointed. So, so when Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, it carries with it all these expectations and so many more. Right? There's, there was no time to go into all of this. This is just like picking and choosing. There were all these expectations that he, that he and the disciples had, which is why he's so taken aback by, the, by the dec- Jesus' declaration that he was going to be killed. You see, messiahs were not supposed to die. Go to that next slide, Chip. It says, from that time on, this is just after Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is, why Pete, this is why Jesus rebukes Peter because his ideas of what a Messiah were supposed to be was not the idea, was not the kind of Messiah that Jesus had come to be. And this is why Jesus rebukes Peter. So I think we can say this. Next slide. The disciples, they wanted a kingdom without a cross. They wanted a kingdom without a cross. A dead Messiah, that wasn't part of their plans. That wasn't, that wasn't why they hitched their wagon to Jesus. He, he, that wasn't, a, a dead Messiah was no good to them. A dead Messiah couldn't expel Rome from the promised land. A dead Messiah couldn't take his place on the throne as God's anointed leader. He's dead. He's gone. Now, what's funny, and what's not funny, what's tragic is today, go to the next slide, we often want a cross but without a kingdom. We often want a cross without a kingdom. We want, we want a divine superman to sort of rescue us personally from our sin, not, not a dying Messiah who's establishing a kingdom. We want our personal salvation. We want our personal relationship without dealing with the bigger picture of what God might be doing in the world besides what's going on in our little tiny area of our life. I just bought the new uh, Jack White album. Any Jack White fans? Yes. Uh, if you don't own the new Jack White album, you should probably go out right after this and get it. Um, there's a song in there, and I was listening to it this morning, and it struck me what he was saying it, um, is, is a lot like what, how we deal with things. He says, I won't let love disrupt, corrupt, or interrupt me. And I think a lot of times we have this view of Jesus that, look, I, just, I want that salvation stuff you talked about, but just don't disrupt me, don't interrupt my life, don't, don't corrupt my life, don't mess with what's going on here. We just, we don't want anything to do with the kingdom. Next slide. N.T. Wright said, we have reduced the kingdom of God to private piety, the victory of the cross to comfort for the conscience, and Easter itself to a happy escapist ending after a sad, dark tale. See, the Christianity that I grew up with, and again, I'm not blaming anybody for this. This is just, this is, the way, this is what I grew up with. The Christianity, Christianity I grew up with was where you learned to be a good, moral, decent citizen who didn't smoke, drink, cuss, or gamble, or in the case of Footloose, dance, <laughs> who went to church Sunday mornings and went to church Wednesday nights and put your money in the offering plate. How many of you grew up with that kind of, that kind of, yeah. 
a lot of us did. Nothing was ever said, or at least maybe I wasn't paying attention and it was, but I don't think anything was ever said about Jesus establishing a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the kingdom was a place, like we said before, the kingdom was a place out there somewhere that you went to when you died. And the kingdom had nothing to do with right here and right now. It had nothing to do with the world at large. It had nothing to do with Bloomington, Indiana. It had nothing to do with Martinsville, Indiana, where I live. It had nothing to do with every tribe and tongue and nation. And what's funny is the majority of Jesus' parables, in one way or another, are directly about the kingdom of God. How many times, in the, you go through your, go through your gospels, just, just looking through the section headings where it talks about the kingdom. How many times does Jesus say the kingdom of God is like, and then compares it to something, a mustard seed, yeast, all, a farmer scattering seed. There's all these parables that are full of Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. And there's a reason for that. Next slide. Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. He was sent to proclaim the kingdom of God. How did we miss this? How did we miss that the main thrust of Jesus' teaching was the kingdom of God, the actual reason that he came among us? So what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes is the kingdom. And what do we mean by kingdom? Well, let's just quickly and briefly here just, just define the kingdom. The kingdom is a present reality. It is, it is about right here and right now what's going on in your life, in the lives of your coworkers, in the lives of your classmates, and, 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 and where you, wherever you go throughout the, the day. The kingdom is a present reality. We'll get into more of that here in a little bit. This is the portion of the kingdom that you and I take part in. Okay? It's a present reality. It's also a future reality. And no, that's not a contradiction. And this part of the kingdom, this is the not yet portion of the kingdom that we've all kind of learned about. That there's something else down the road. Matt talks about the invisible world that we don't see. The things going on behind the curtains. This is that part of the kingdom. It's, uh, the next thing, it's, it's the range of God's effective will where the world is as he intended it to be. It, it, you, could, you could say it this way, that God's in charge and this is what it looks like. That's the kingdom of God. It's when God's in charge and this is what it looks like. And we'll go into more of that here in a minute too. It's literally the joining of heaven and earth. Jesus prayed in, in, in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is, uh, you could also say it this way, the way Radiohead, to steal from them, it's everything in its right place. The kingdom is everything in its right place. So what kind of kingdom is this that we're talking about? What does this kingdom look like? What did it look like in the time of Jesus, and what does it look like today? The Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and in particular the prophets, are full of visions of the coming kingdom of God. A, a time when God will get what God wants and the world will be as he intended it to be. Isaiah and Daniel specifically, those two books in, in particular, are full of these, of these visions of the kingdom of God. And what I want to do is I want to I read Isaiah 61. And what I want you to do, um, unless you're incredibly sleepy, is, is just close your eyes and listen as I read this. And, and as you do this, as I'm reading, just imagine what the world would look like if this that I'm about to read would actually come true. What would the world look like? Okay, let's read. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adores, adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. That's the kind of kingdom that God desires. See, Isaiah's vision of the kingdom is one of feasting and forgiveness and freedom. There is joy and there is justice, there is wholeness and there is healing. There is rebuilding and restoring. And this is the kind of world that God desires where the last and the least and the lost are blessed, where justice and righteousness roll down like a mighty river and where every nation declares the glory of God, where the poor in spirit will be making the kingdom of heaven happen, where the meek will be taking over the earth so gently that the powerful won't even notice until it's too late. Peacemakers will put arms manufacturers out of business and the merciful will show everyone that there's a different way to relate to people other than being judgmental. Now, fast forward to the time of Jesus. Israel is once again living under the rule of a foreign power, longing for a Messiah to set them free. And enter Jesus with this message of a kingdom that is becoming a reality among them right now at that moment through him. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to field trip. We, we read the, that passage in Mark, that first, that first chapter where Jesus talks, says the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what I'm going to do is just take a quick field trip through the first couple chapters very quickly following this declaration of the kingdom and look at these images that Jesus picks up on out of Isaiah 61. And these pictures, these these stories that Mark has laid out that show us what the kingdom of God is like. Mark chapter 1, verse 21 to 26. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The very next story. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. 
the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. The kingdom of God is a kingdom, first and foremost, of healing. It's a kingdom of healing, and not just physical healing. These stories were, were of a physical nature. It's a kingdom where the mental, emotional, and spiritual wounds in our lives can be and are healed. There's a young lady that um, I met through my, during my second ministry, about a month after I got there. Her name's Kim, and to say that she was a mess would be an understatement. Um, no home life to speak of. Uh, still, really to this day, no home life to speak of. Uh, mom's bipolar, and um, sometimes she's okay, and sometimes she's um, flat out just Looney Tunes. I mean, uh, and that's, that's a nice way of putting it. Um, her father has told her numerous times that he wants nothing to do with her. Um, this is what she came to me with. <laughs> I've been there a month, uh, and this is, this is one of the first people that come to talk to me. She was eight, like 17 or 18 at the time. And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I just want you to write down everything that you want to talk about. Um, she was angry with God for <laughs> probably obvious reasons. Um, so she wrote down everything. I said, every question you've got, every angry thing you've ever said to God, whatever it is that you want to say or talk about, I don't care what you say, I don't care how you say it, write it down, bring it in, we'll talk. So we talked for six months, once a week. We just got together, she brought her journal in, and we just talked about everything, literally. Today, um, actually, uh, about a year after this all happened, um, well, back up a minute. Uh, she actually got to be pretty close with my wife and I and our family, and uh, we've kind of sort of halfway adopted her as a daughter, um, uh, which is pretty cool. She's sort of like half daughter, half big sister to me. I know that's kind of a weird, <laughs> it's a weird combination when you say it out loud. Um, <laughs> I don't know how, you know, the way to describe our relationship other than that. Anyway, so and she, she comes and stays with us when she's home. We have a, we have a spare bedroom we call Kim's room. Um, it's actually Kim's room slash my guitar room. So when she's there, it's Kim's room. When she's not, it's littered with music sheets and guitar stuff and picks and everything else. Um, but right now, she is working at Youth with a, uh, Youth with a Mission in New Zealand as um, on staff at the base. Um, and previous to that, for three years, she was either on or leading uh, teams around the world doing mission work. I call, her, I call her my one, my one really cool success in ministry um, because it's one, it was a testimony to what God can do when you let him. Um, she's, she's astounding. I, I, I wish everybody could meet her because um, she, always, she always refers to herself as I'm kind of a big deal. Um, and, and she really kind of is. She, she, she's pretty astounding. But she's a testimony to what God's kingdom can do in somebody's life when they let it. Um, I mentioned earlier that I was in ministry for seven years, and a lot of you probably heard this story, so I won't belabor the point. Um, I was at first, my first church for about five years, a little town called Liberty, Indiana, which is over near Richmond, a little bit south of Richmond. 
Uh, wonderful church. We love that place. We still love that place. We still love the people there. Um, just, a, just a great place, man. I mean, it's just, it was my first ministry. I was 22. What do you know at 22? Uh, I was ignorant, and they let me be ignorant, and they let me make, my sta- make mistakes, and they let me learn, and uh, it, was just, it was just a wonderful place. And then we felt kind of God moving us that we'd kind of reached a point where we'd probably done most of what we were going to be able to do there. Um, and actually, it was my wife that started sort of sensing that before I did. I was like, no, 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 we're good, because I just, I don't want change. <laughs> I'm not doing that. That was too hard. So long story short, we ended up taking a ministry in Martinsville, Indiana at a church, um, and kind of from the get-go, um, Kim's story aside, kind of from the get-go, it was hard. Uh, it, it was a rough, rough go. Um, and really about the last six months were pretty much one nightmare after another of meetings, of why aren't you doing this, why aren't you doing that, why aren't these kids coming. Um, and, and the irony was <laughs> we were doing some pretty cool stuff with the kids that we had. Um, and it was kids that were, needless to say, marginalized by everybody else. And, I mean, we had skater kids and band geeks and all mingling together and loving each other and working for the kingdom. And it was like, I kind of thought that's what we were supposed to be doing. But uh, it, 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 not to bring up any past bitterness, but it, it didn't work out. And I was, I was asked to resign. Um, now, here's the thing. I, I, was, I was bitter <laughs> for a while. I was angry. I was hurt. Um, it, was, it was the most damaging experience I've ever been through, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Um, because not only were we asked to resign, but we were sort of demonized when we left. Um, and that was very hard to go through. The, the kids were told they couldn't come to our house. Uh, and I remember, because we, we'd been having Bible studies after I left, I just said, you guys come over. If you want to come over, I'll teach you. If not, that's fine. And I remember the first night that nobody came, and I, I remember just sitting and just crying because it, it was over. Um, and that, that hurt. And I was angry for quite a while, and I was bitter. But I can stand here before you today and tell you that I've been healed of that. <laughs> um, I'm not like that anymore. So my question to you is, what healing do you need right now? Everybody does. Um, it may not be anything that you think is big, but it, it, it's a big deal. If it's affecting you spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, it's a big deal. And then the second question is obviously, who do you know that needs healing, and what part can you take in that? Go to the next slide, Chip. Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. If there was one place I could be in the Gospels, it would have been, for the, it would have been this, because that's pretty awesome, um, unless you're the homeowner. Uh, when, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who, for, who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So the kingdom of God is not just a kingdom of healing, it's a kingdom of forgiveness. Amen? 
Peter asked Jesus one time, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven? Jesus says, no, 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 no. Not seven. Seventy times seven. Now, Jesus isn't saying count to 490 and stop forgiving people. That does equal 490, right? 70 times seven is 490? Okay, good. My third grade math is failing me. I want you to understand something about my situation leaving that church in Martinsville. I hated the leadership there. I hated them. And I don't just mean dislike. I mean, I physically hated them to the point where it made me ill. The bitterness was chewing me up inside. And I had to get to, the, I had to, get to a place of forgiveness. And I, I, I owe a lot of that to this church. I owe a lot of that to Matt and his teaching. It seemed like every week I came, he would say something like, man, there he goes again. He's right. I had to get to a place of forgiveness. Uh, many of you know that my brother and I, along with another guy, are going to be planting a church in Martinsville. I, I couldn't get to that point where I could plant a church in Martinsville without getting to the point where I could not only accept my own forgiveness, but forgive the people that have hurt me. And one of the first things that the other gentlemen were planting a church with Michael, um, he and I are from, he, that's his home church that we left, and he left as well. And his, most of his family left as well too after I left. He and I have talked, and one of the first things we're going to do as we get this church rolling is go talk to the leadership at that church and say, how can we serve you? I was not in a place where I could say that three years ago. It's only through the kingdom of God and through Jesus' healing that I was able to come to a point where I, I can forgive people, where I can forgive what they said about me, what they did to me. You see, forgiving someone isn't just about setting that other person free. Forgiving someone is about setting yourself free from anger and bitterness and hate and whatever else is eating you up inside. What would Bloomington, Indiana look like? What would Martinsville, Indiana look like if we became the kind of people who willingly forgive the wrongs that were done against us? So let me ask this question. Do you need to accept someone's forgiveness? It's not always easy. <laughs> it's not always easy to accept forgiveness from someone. And is there someone you need to forgive? If there is, start praying and get it done. Because um, it's going to eat you alive if you don't. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The kingdom of God is a kingdom. Oh, sorry. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of feasting. It's a kingdom of feasting. Man, time and time and time again throughout the scriptures, you find Jesus eating with people. There is joy, there is celebration, there is fellowship and feasting together in the kingdom of God. And everyone's invited. Jesus would feast with anybody who would have him. <clears throat> you know the story of Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. he, would, he Jesus just invited himself over. He's like, I'm coming to your house to eat. All right. 
he was always hanging around the wrong sort of people, which ironically enough in the kingdom, those are the right kind of people because there are no wrong kind of people in the kingdom of God. How many times have you been in a church and it looks like a funeral home? There's no joy. It's as if Jesus never rose from the dead at all. It's as if there was no life left in the world. They come in, we sit, and we sing our funeral dirges, and we listen to a guy drone on and on, hopefully not what I'm doing right now, and we go home. There's no life together. There's no feasting together. There's no celebration. There's no joy. At Passover, Jesus took a feast, the main feast of the Jewish calendar. He took this feast with his disciples and turns it into this living image of the kingdom, this new covenant, which we celebrate every week with the bread and the cup. A number of Jesus' parables revolve around feast imagery, around banquets. Jesus' first miracle in the, in, the, in the book of John is turning 120 gallons of water into the best wine around just to keep the party going. This is a king I can get behind. <laughs> he loved being around people and feasting and celebrating with them. Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of freedom. We are free, truly and completely free. Paul says it amazingly well, as he usually does in the book of Galatians. He said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. If the, uh, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And the thing is, we don't always want freedom. Freedom involves responsibility to God. It involves responsibility to others' lives. It involves, it involves responsibility to ourselves to live the way of Jesus with that freedom. Israel, at time, a number of times in the, in the book of Exodus and throughout the, the books of Moses, first five books, Israel longs to, talks about they groan and complain and they long to return to slavery in Egypt. Are you kidding me? Do you remember what you did in Egypt? But we do the same thing. We do the same thing. The kingdom of God frees us from others' opinions. It frees us from others' expectations of who we should be. It frees us from the deadly grasp of religious observation. It frees us from having to be good enough for others. It frees us from having to be good enough for God. It frees us from addiction. It frees us from our histories. And it frees us from our family's histories. The kingdom of God says you don't have to be that way anymore. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I'm here to tell you that you don't have to be that way anymore. You don't have to be that way anymore. Being part of the kingdom is about learning to live in the new reality of your freedom that has been given to you by Jesus Christ. So, after all this talk of the kingdom, we have to ask the question, what does it look like for God to be in charge? That's the kingdom, right? It's what it looks like when God is in charge of the world. I, you don't have to go very far to realize that the world is kind of a mess right now. Has anybody noticed that besides me? 
I mean, the, the gap between rich and poor is growing ever wider. The middle class is disappearing. I, there's rarely a day goes by that I don't read on the internet some horrific story of something that some parents done to their child. Kim Kardashian is j- dating Kanye West. I mean, the world is just a mess. <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't open up a black hole in the apocalypse, I don't know what will. So the question is, is God really in charge? Is God really in charge when we look at the world? Now, remember that the kingdom is both a present and a future reality. History is moving toward an end point where, when, when heaven and earth will become one and when God will dwell once again with his creation. This passage in Revelation, this is a killer passage. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. God is working towards something that will find its final completion in the future. In the meantime, though, what does that present reality part of the kingdom look like? In Genesis chapter 1, we go all the way back to the beginning. It said, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Humans were created to bear fully and completely the image of God in the world. Humans were given a divine vocation to rule over and care for the created order. But we failed and creation was cursed. Cue God entering into history through Jesus, proclaiming a here and now kingdom. He lives, he heals, he forgives, he feasts, he frees He gives us a picture, gives us picture after picture of what this kingdom reality is, both now and in the future. In Matthew, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him by God. So we can say that Jesus has the authority of the kingdom, showing the world what it looks like when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, God's in charge, and this is what it looks like. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. That's what he has the authority to do. Now, watch what Jesus does. Mark chapter 3. Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have what? Authority to drive out demons. See, Jesus is giving these guys his authority to go show the world what it looks like when God's in charge. In the book of Acts, the disciples ask Jesus if he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he tells them in a few days they will be given power the Holy Spirit, and that they will be his witnesses to the very ends of the earth. He's sending them out with the authority of the Holy Spirit into the world to be his witnesses. In effect, he's telling them, you will go do what I've been doing. You will show the world what it looks like when God is in charge. You will show them the kingdom. Because from the very beginning, 
it was God's intention to rule the world through us. It was God's intention to rule the world through us, created in his image. That changes a little bit, doesn't it? Through the Holy Spirit, you and I have the authority of God to act out the kingdom of God in the world. This is what the present reality of the kingdom looks like. It looks like you going out into the world and living out fully the way of Jesus. The scriptures call us the body of Christ for a reason. You're the body of Christ. You are the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ on earth. Because you are the kingdom come. You are the kingdom come. I want to close with this question. What does it look like for God to rule the world through you? What does it look like for you? What does it look like for God to rule the world through you? What does it look like for God to rule the world through me during a 12-hour shift making baby wipes at a factory? What does it look like? What does it look like in your classrooms? What does it look like in your offices? What does it look like at Starbucks? What does it look like wherever you go for God to rule the world through you? Let's pray. God, we thank you that the message of Jesus is much bigger than just us. That he, through us, is doing something um, bigger than we could even begin to understand. (laughs) Even bigger than we could even get our minds around. That he is doing something in the world through us that when we become part of his kingdom, when we, when we say yes to Jesus and we, we hitch our wagon to him and say, I want what you have for me, we become part of something so much bigger than anything we've ever been part of in our lives and ever will be part of. We literally become the kind of people who are bringing the kingdom of heaven here to earth. Father, we know that, that, that the world is, is messed up. There's all kinds of problems. We all have our own issues. We all have our own things we're dealing with. We know that there's a future reality, Father, that that we're longing for, that we're working towards, that one day you will come down again to be with your people, that you will wipe away every tear, there'll be no more mourning, no more sadness, no more death, no more pain. Father, there will be feasting, there will be complete healing, there will be complete freedom in you. Father, my prayer is that we would live in the reality of the kingdom of God every minute of our lives the moment we step outside these doors, you would constantly remind us, Father, that we are, we are the kingdom come. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit filling us, empowering us, Father, to do what you desire us to do. In his name we pray, amen.